Um, and today we're going to be looking at uh, the time period uh, that where David and Saul somewhat overlap. And uh, it's also uh, important for us to see, obviously, how God is, are, is bringing all of these things together. Uh, and I remember having a conversation uh, with a young lady on staff named Morgan Weiss who would come, and, and, and Morgan is the kind of person who loved to come in and say, um, God is a God of order, right? And the Bible describes him that way. And since God is a God of order, then I expect everything in terms of how God works to be orderly. And I, I like that idea, actually. I like that, that when, uh, when I'm trying to think about how God is going to work, I like him to be predictable, so that we can know exactly where things are going to be. Um, which means that the firstborn of every family is going to be the leader of that family, which we find biblically is just not true. <laughs> and we're going, wait a second, I thought that there was going to be, and you know, you can think about this in terms of the kings, uh, and I really, wanna, I really wanna jump into this, like what we actually see with the kings, and we're gonna kind of have David and, and Saul and look at the two of them uh, somewhat side by side tonight because there really literally is an overlap between the two of them. Even though yesterday I kind of went all the way through Saul, or last week I went all the way through Saul's life, this week, I want to look at that time period between when Saul was anointed king and then when David was anointed king, and then there was a long overlap that you had two kings that were anointed, and that's going to be a critical component. And so when you're looking at the, uh, the kingdoms of both Saul and David, one of the first things it's good to realize is that God is the one who sets the king over Israel so that they might lead them. You can actually read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 17, and in Deuteronomy 17, it sets out very clear criterion that is necessary for the people of Israel to be faithful to God, to be faithful to his covenant, then this is what it actually looks like. So as much as when we look at 1 Samuel 8, which is the encounter with Samuel and the people, when they say, we want a king, and Samuel's upset, and God says, let him do it because they've rejected me, the point is, is that you can keep going back and back and back and you actually realize that, that God has already said this is something that is going to happen. That God actually even tells Abraham before that, that in, your, in, 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 in you will come kings. Now, obviously the king of kings, Jesus, is, is what's being predicted and prophesied most. But what we actually see is God is very aware, and it's good for us to remember this, God is very aware of the entire plan that is happening and then we're seeing it somewhat in snippets. And so God at times will reveal what it's going to ultimately look like. And so God gives some expectations. And I would even say this. Not only are these expectations help for, helpful for us to know what a king should be like. It will also help us study the rest of the kings and looking at now, now how is God judging them? And what's interesting is that when we look at the kings... I, um, when I was a little boy, my dad actually and I, we loved to study the kings. I still remember one time, we were at this small little church, uh, and I still remember uh, my dad teaching our class, because there's nothing cooler than your dad as your youth pastor, um, and I just, I still remember my dad kind of walking through and teaching us the kings, and I was fascinated by this. And the categories I kind of had in my mind were, was that there were, there were good kings, and then there were bad kings. And good kings did good things, right? Like adultery, that'd be bad. Well, wait a second, a good king did that. Um, 
So what is it that would classify someone as good and bad? And I had these categories in my mind as to what good and bad looks like, and it was usually like the big sins. Murder, that's bad. Adultery, that's bad. Um, Stealing things, that's bad. But when you look at what's described here, it's true that those things are part and parcel to it, but the way God describes his frustration with kings is actually a little bit different. Like, for example, God doesn't seem to be too upset or too negatively um, uh, critical on David amassing, amassing would be too strong, taking on a few extra wives. We really have no critique of that. David has a wife, and David grabs Michael, and David takes Ahinoam, and David takes Abigail, and later David takes Bathsheba. And you don't get some kind of a, we shouldn't do this. You don't get that, actually. And it's very interesting, and and be, be looking at this, we'll talk more about David next week, but how David and why David gathers a few wives is actually fundamentally different than what you see in Solomon. Solomon takes on wives for political reasons. Solomon takes on wives, hundreds of them, why? So that he can have the right relationship with the kings around him. That is an abomination to God. Okay, so where is the abomination? And when you look at the list here, it's, it's very interesting. Let's just kind of go through. This is actually taken from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, and I've kind of bulleted it for us. So this is what the, what, what, what the Lord God, what Yahweh God says about how the king should function within Israel. Number one, the Lord, and there's a kind of that relational possessive, the Lord, your God, which is a key component to this. The Lord, your God, will actually choose him, which helps me realize that this is one of the dangers, and we'll see why, the dangers of you and I selecting people is that you and I can easily succumb to outward appearance issues, can't we? We can look at people, have you ever looked at someone and been amazed by their appearance? Have we ever looked at anybody and been, or listened to anybody and been amazed by their oratory? And let's realize that there is a profound inability in us and temptation in us to qualify and to look at people in ways different than God. Therefore, the Lord your God will choose him. Number two, one of your brothers is the one that has to be king, not a foreigner. Sorry, Canadians, you don't count, okay? So not a foreigner. There's grace, by the way, let me hear you, or let me, let me say this. There is grace extended to foreigners all throughout this section. Profound grace extended to foreigners. But the king will be an Israelite. Next, you will not acquire many horses. Now, when, first when I hear that, I'm thinking, Who cares? Seriously? Like, what's wrong with gathering horses? Does anybody know what is meant by, although he literally means don't gather horses, why? What do horses represent? Military strength and power. Now, that's interesting. God actually says to Israel, what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to gather up many horses. I don't want you to make a big army. Some biblical things that we will already see is this. God loves to say to his leaders, hey, whatever you do, don't count your men. Do not count your men. Why can't I count my men? Because you'll think it's the men that are helping you. Like that's how crazy you people are. 
Literally, think of this. It is so counterintuitive. Do not count your men. Do not gather many horses. And then he says, right underneath that, um, don't cause, do not cause the people to return to Egypt. And then when he continues on in Deuteronomy 17, it's don't cause the people to return to Egypt to get many horses. <laughs> Obviously, the, the place where horses are coming from is Egypt. Whatever you do, don't go down to Egypt to acquire more horses. So it's, there's this long extended section of Deuteronomy 17 against horses. Next, do not acquire many wives. Now, again, my context would be, yeah, that's right, because God made one man and one woman, and we believe marriage is between one man and one woman. Actually, not what's happening here. I believe that is true, but what God is trying to say is, especially in the context of this, I don't want you to trust your political savvy and your negotiative skills and the allegiances and the alliances that you make to be where you put your trust. Now, as you probably know, Israel kind of sits in a particular area of the world that has um, up and around this way, top of the Mediterranean, you have uh, the Hittite Empire. If you go this way into the desert, you have both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Down this way, you actually have the Egyptians. And whenever these armies choose to fight each other, they love to travel up and down and through this way. One of the biggest reasons why is because you have a massive desert here. So geographically, Israel is a little bit of a gateway for these armies. And when these guys are gonna fight these guys and they need something to sustain them along the way, then they'll kind of use this as a stopover, kind of like you would, hey, it's a city, I see a quick trip, let's stop and grab something. Um, the armies of the, hey, I see something, looks like a small little village, let's rape and pillage as we go along, that kind of a mindset. And so the question is, in this rather small area, with rather huge empires around them, how do they stay safe? How do we stay safe? And the answer is, you just gotta align yourself with a really strong ally. Listen, I'm Canadian, I know what I'm talking about. What, all we really need is a really good, strong neighbor to the south of us. And then, you know, why, why don't the Canadians have a military? Seriously, you don't know? <laughs> why would we need one really Americans are nice and they don't want the Russians near why do we need a military okay so you think about it so you have these strong friends what's wrong with that well it causes you and, and by the way think of this as well that when you think of how these nations interact the Egyptians are strong, why? Because their gods are strong. And, and the Babylonians are strong, why? Because their gods are strong. And the Assyrians are strong, why? Because their gods are strong. And the Israelites are strong, why? Because their God is strong. So when you're swearing this allegiance, it's, it's hard for us to fathom, right? But it's not just this nation versus nation it's a nationality that is tied up with a deity and the the real question becomes 
and we'll see this in the time of the kings, when the Babylonians are threatening, where are you gonna go? Read the book Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah and the number of threats that are made against Egypt. I'm gonna come get you, Egypt. Why, why, why is Isaiah making a big deal out of Egypt being weak and, and under God's judgment? Why? Because the king of Judah is trying to find help there. Really, you're not gonna ask me for help, God says. You're not gonna come to me for help. You're going to trust on your horses. You're gonna trust in your allegiances. You're gonna trust in giving one of your daughters to that king so that then he'll kind of owe you. Like that's how you're going to manage this. This is one of the reasons why I love this section because it exposes my own heart. It really does. I don't need some kind of creepy, moralistic, application of these kings' lives, the fundamental issue that Israel has is will you trust God for your peace and your prosperity, the God of heaven? Will you trust him more than anything? If there's something that uh, Christians around the world, but I don't, I don't live around the world, I live in Oklahoma, okay? Grateful to live in Oklahoma. If there's one thing I would love to remind the church is that who is in charge of, who is the source of any true peace and prosperity? And the answer is God. The answer is him. And if we ever be de- get deceived into thinking it can come from somewhere else, here's the danger. If we can ever be deceived into thinking it comes from somewhere else, then we become susceptible to trading in what we believe about our God so that we can keep peace and prosperity. I'll do anything to keep peace and prosperity. Anything? Yeah, anything. Like, I'll worship anything as long as I can have stuff and live in, like, some kind of security. Is that not true? Will we not do just about, will we not not compromise our Christian principles for peace and prosperity? And the answer is what? Yes. And this is that fundamental challenge that we see and, and God looks and says, this is, why, this is why kings are not the answer. This is why humanity, um, in terms of its leadership, is never the answer. So he says, do not acquire many wives, but it's not about polygamy. That's bad too, but it is a lack of trust as it continues down. I love this, do not acquire excessive gold and silver. Again, why? So that I don't need God. Andrea and I talk about this a lot. I just, I remember when we had nothing and I remember just this keen awareness of our need for God and and, and, and his provision. And I I remember working at this tiny little church and I remember like we did this internship at this tiny little church in Southern Ontario and the church took up an offering. And at the end of 19, summer of 1991, I think the offering was like almost $3,000. And I'm just like, this is crazy. Like you were going back to college and we've worked our tails off and, and now, and God's people provided. Man, that's, is that not incredible? That they just provided. And uh, like Sunnybrook provides more for that for us. But it just, it comes differently. And it feels different. And I'm thinking, wait, I, but I wanna, I wanna know that God will provide. I wanna know that God will provide with his people. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want that sense of that. I wanna be able to experience God's care. We, wanna, we want God to be alive and real. 
He's most alive and real for people in need. Well, yeah, no, I don't want to know him that badly. <laughs> right? Talk to people with profound physical, financial need, and they talk about God's presence and his provision. Yeah, no, I really don't want him that badly. Now, do you see why Jesus says, and woe to you who are rich, for you already have your reward. It is greater, it is easier um, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because rich people just don't even realize, can't even fathom how bad they need God because they got it taken care of. So he tells the king, do not acquire excessive gold, silver and gold. And then I love these last ones. He will also write, he will write a copy. He will write a copy of this law and it has to be approved by the Levitical priests. And then he shall read it all the days of his life. That or so that, these are the things, that he may learn to fear the Lord my God also that he will keep all the words of the law by doing all the words of the law. He will write it out. It, literally in the Hebrew, it says, and he will keep it with him, like he will keep it like right beside him. And he will obey it. He will read it and he will do it. This is what a king should do. And then lastly, that his heart cannot be lifted up, ab lifted up above his brothers that you, you, you don't want, and you can imagine how this happens, right? You don't want this, hey, I'm the king. Look at me. Look what I did. I'm the king. So he's not allowed to have that kind of heart. Do you know how hard that is? I, I had a, 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 a kind of a very loosely associated friend who became rather famous. Um, and when he was talking to a mutual friend of mine, uh, of ours, and he asked, what's the hardest thing? He said, the hardest thing I'm going through right now is trying to keep my head on straight because everybody is telling me that I am the most amazing thing and I am now becoming famous uh, in Canada and everybody knows who I am and it's just, it's just really kind of crazy. It just goes to your head. And what do we say? Oh, must be rough, right? Must be rough. Actually, according to this, it, actually it is pretty rough to have that kind of pride. I mean, well, you know what's crazy? All of these things that are described here are things we envy. God says, don't do this, and we envy it. At least I do. I envy this stuff. Like, I'm trying to actually work my life so I can have some of these things. And God's saying, hey, be careful. Be careful. I mean, so definitely for kings. And then lastly, do not turn aside from the commandment. I love the singularity of that. I ended up doing some extra time just looking through how, or looking at how often the, the uh, entire Deuteronomic law is just referred to as the commandment. It goes back a little bit to what Jesus says, which is, is that really there's one commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the command that he has. And kings get in the way of that. Because why? Because, they, because of the gifts and the abilities and the power that they have, they lose sight and God gets replaced and kings become kings over Israel and this is how a culture and a society falls apart. So uh, as we look at David and Saul kind of side by side, it's good to understand this, that number one, God is the one who selected Saul and he failed, <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to go into it again, but we talked last week, but let's, let's, let's not think for a moment. I mean, this may kind of challenge some of our thoughts. God selected Saul, and God said, hey, this is the one that I want. This is the one that I chose, and yet he failed. 
So really, it's kind of interesting as, as we kind of wrestle with why does God do things and why does God allow things and, and why would God pick someone who knows he was gonna fail? If I, if I could just tell you the number of times I've talked with congregations or husbands and wives who will say to me, you know, I thought we went through the process, we prayed about it, um, he really seemed like the pastor that we should have and then look at what happened. How did God let this happen, right? And I've seen it happen in marriages. Man, I prayed about it, I thought about it, I mean, I got wise counsel, and I really thought that everything was gonna work out great, and how did this divorce happen, right? And, and what's interesting is, is that what we see all throughout the Bible is God's sovereign selection, this, this beautiful interplay of God's sovereign selection and humanity's choice and response. So do I believe that God knew all that Saul was going to do? Yes. God selects Saul, appoints him to this place, gives him an incredible opportunity, and Saul chooses in those moments, and when you go back, and you'd have to look at last week's stuff, when you go back, where does Saul fail? Saul fails repeatedly by disobedient acts where he knows what God has said, and then he says, I think I have a better plan. I know what God has said, and I know what I should do, but actually, now that I look at it, I really think that what, I must have heard something wrong, or maybe God didn't know this was going to happen, although that doesn't really make sense, but anyway, the expediency of the moment means I'm going to alter, and his lack of trust in God and in his plan, in his sovereign plan, Saul loses absolutely everything. So Saul fails to preserve his kingship, even though God selected him, and the Lord revealed to Samuel through his disobedience that Tomorrow I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you will anoint him prince over my people. That is actually referring to King Saul. So God, just like promised in Deuteronomy, God selects Saul. And then we also see that God is the one who rejected Saul. Because why? Because of Saul's disobedience and his repeated disobedience. He, God is the one who rejected Saul and then also selected King David. So there's a couple of texts that I want you to see. The first one, again, is in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Samuel says to Saul, this is during his second act of disobedience, Saul looks at him and says, your kingdom shall not continue because Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you going back to Deuteronomy 17, which was the promise. You cannot stray from what I have commanded you or else I will strip this from you. Um, it is good for us to, with sober judgment, the Bible loves to describe um, an appropriate fear and an appropriate awareness that God is not a respecter of persons and therefore there is no privileged position that allows for disobedience, can I say that again? God is not a respecter of persons. Therefore, there is no privilege of position that then allows for disobedience in our relationship to him. And I don't say that so that you'll be like biting your fingernails and afraid. But I do say it so that you will, as the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation, to have a healthy reverence and in that sense, fear for the righteousness of God, which I, I, I do believe that we've lost. 
I do believe we have lost it. And it's not the kind of biblical teaching or a biblical warning that says, hey, you gotta be good, and if you're not good, God's gonna get you. I don't wanna return to some kind of empty quest for goodness as described by mostly cultural trends, but actually an obedience to God. That's what God desires, is an obedience to him and a, and a humility to him. And, and what I love to think about this is, and so what is an example of this, this, this kind of person you're describing? And, and our, our case today is going to be, I don't know, how about David? How about David is the example of what a, 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 real, a real godly person should look like? Think of the complexity of what I just said to you. So tell me what a real godly person looks like. King David is a great example. Seriously? <laughs> like what parts? And I'll tell you this, all of it, like all of it. It is important for us to realize, as God is described here to Saul through Samuel, I have found a man after my own heart. Think of this. Does God know the fullness of what David is capable of? Does God know that David is going to be the giant slayer and also the Uriah, innocent guy, killer? Mm -hmm. And does God know that David is lustful? Mm -hmm. Does God know that David is going to inappropriately deal with the sin in his own family? Answer, yep. One of my favorite things that I get to do in ministry, and it helps me when I find myself on a bed of suffering, uh, kind of weighed down by my own failures and sins, is I love to remind people in some of their deepest periods of brokenness not to give up on God's sanctifying work in their lives. I can't believe I did it. I just can't believe that I did it. Yeah, I know. I mean, honestly, I'm surprised too. <laughs> now, not that I didn't think you were capable of it, but I just, I am surprised that you actually did that. And then I remind him. Now, do, do you remember when you came to Christ? I love to go back to that. That's why baptism, both literally and figuratively, is such a powerful thing. That's why going back to that, do you remember the encounter you had with Jesus and you went from lost to saved? Do you remember that? Yes. Okay, I just wanna ask you one question. Did God know then the fullness of who you are, the fullness of who you are capable of? Did God know your, enti know your entire journey? Answer me, yes. So God knew this, yes. And yet he still chose to save you, yes. Don't forget that. God knew that Peter would deny him. God knew that, I mean, think about it. The apostle Saul, even though he didn't know, and he even claims that, well, one of the reasons why God looks favorably is that I did it out of ignorance. He does say that, actually. But you do realize that if God really needed Saul to be good all the time, he could have done something different, couldn't he have? But God isn't in heaven going, how do I get Saul good? God is in heaven orchestrating all of these things according to his good purposes. And it is important for us to remember that. So when I am making statements regarding that there is no privilege and we need to take the holiness of God seriously and we need to live in reverent fear of the fullness of who he is, I'm not asking for some kind of Victorian purity or nicety. That's not what I'm preaching. But the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in which you and I can take the fullness of our depravity and take that to the goodness of God and experience his grace. Isn't that crazy? That is just, that is mind-blowing that he can actually do that.
So David is, in fact, our example. So the second text that we look at, look at is 1 Samuel 16.1. I love this. This is, this is when David is about to be anointed king. And it's, it's interesting, like Samuel is mad at this. I don't know, he's probably partly mad at Saul. He's probably frustrated with the entire process. He seems to be somewhat not pleased with God's plan. Um, God does this actually sometimes to people um, when, they're, when they're grieving. This is a great lesson. Um, when they're grieving over something that God has decided and they're staying in their grief. God will sometimes, he asked Joshua, why are you still sitting there? after the, 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 the battle of Ai, where they were destroyed because of sin, and Joshua was all upset about it, and probably legitimately so. And Saul comes, why are you doing this? Stand up, and let's get back to this. And so here God encounters Samuel, and he says, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I don't think I'd ever really noticed how actively, because I grew up in a kind of a more Armenian backgrounded church, but I don't think I ever realized how much God selected Saul. I mean, I kind of knew that, but God selected Saul, and then God rejects Saul because of his rebellion. And then as it continues on, I love that statement, for I have made for myself a king. This is my plan. And God is obviously uh, doing that, and so we're going to see that encounter here in a moment. So let's take a quick look at David and Saul's interaction that they have with one another. And one of the, one of the lessons as we're kind of looking through this overlap, where Saul, time, time going this way, where Saul is king and a couple of things happen. Uh, Saul starts out with this great gesture of kindness and grace. Saul then continues on and and sees a little bit of military victory. And then for the most part, what you see with Saul is failure and failure and failure. And it's during that time that God comes along and anoints King David. Now, Now here's the part that when you just hear the stories disconnected, and I, I, I've been talking about them a lot, but all of my great Sunday school teachers, whether it was my mom or my dad or whatever, and they're just giving me disjointed stories, right? So Noah built an ark, and uh, Daniel was in a lion's den. Remember that one? Okay, Daniel was in a lion's den, and David killed Goliath, and I bet you David and Daniel were like friends, or they lived hundreds of years apart, one of the two. You know, and you kind of fail to see how all these things fit together. And so I want to just, I want you to, I want you to just think about the chronology that is happening here. So Saul rebels, and in 1 Samuel 16 is where we are. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, God says to Samuel, I want you to go and I want you to anoint a king. Okay, so we, we don't even know, we don't even know who it's going to be yet. Don't know his name. If we're reading through the story, we don't even know his name yet. And he goes down to Bethlehem. Sounds like Christmas. He goes down to Bethlehem. He sees this man named Jesse. Jesse has got these sons. And when you begin to look at the sons of Jesse, Samuel is impressed with, the, with all of them because they're, they're, I mean, these are good-sized, strong men. And so he looks at him and goes, wow. And, and here's what's interesting, too. You do know that Saul is described, and God picked him. Saul is described as being a rather formidable Size. He's a head taller than everybody else. 
So God selected him, and so I find that to be somewhat interesting. So Samuel is looking at these people, and God says, no, it's not him, and no, it's not him, and no, it's not him. And Samuel's going, okay, I don't get what's happening. And it seems like all the brothers have come through. And he finally says to Jesse, is there anybody else? Well, yeah, we, got, we have one more. I mean, but he's out in the field. He's kind of taking care of some sheep. And he says, well, I want you to bring him. And God says, this is the one. And so you have this, this, this uh, God selection that really kind of drives, and the repeated phrase that you always see is this man after God's own heart. One of my favorite ways to look at that is actually, I'll give you a verse, it didn't kind of make it in my notes, but write down Acts chapter 13, I believe it's verse 22, it's either 21 or 22, where it describes in that story of uh, Saul's, in, in Saul's sermon, it describes actually that interaction that exists um, between uh, God and his selection of David. Um, and then the other phrase that I love there, it says, and then after David had served God's purpose for him, in his own generation, he went to sleep. I still remember a sermon I heard years ago just on that small little phrase. And after David had served God's purpose for him, in his own generation, he fell asleep. And that fits really, really well with what we just read, which was that God said, I'm going to raise up for myself someone who is going to be after my own heart. And so it is in the beginning of that encounter that we actually see King David, um, and we see him now anointed. So imagine you're David, and imagine your brothers, and imagine your dad is there, and the prophet Samuel walks in, and the last person he's anointed was Saul, who is the king, who by the way is still the king, and Samuel walks in and says, hey, and takes David and in front of everybody anoints him king. Samuel's actually afraid to go and do this. Did you know that? Read, read the story. Samuel goes, well, what am I gonna do? They're gonna ask me why I'm there. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll kind of make up a story to kind of give an excuse why I'm there. Because why? Because you just don't go around anointing kings while there's a king. But David is anointed king. So now you have two kings side by side. Now here's what's interesting. And now the David narrative starts. So the first thing that you're going to see here is the story of the harp that happens after the anointed. So just, again, how many of you knew that David played for Saul? Right? But how many of you actually knew that David played for Saul? He's sitting there playing for him going, this is awkward. You know what I mean? If they played the game, how many kings are in this room? Saul always got it wrong. <laughs> how many kings are in this room? Two, one, one, I mean one, right? So think about that. Like David is the rightly anointed by Samuel, prophesied by God. And you, you need to hold on to that as you're watching the David narrative play out. Okay, because now all of a sudden all these stories are going to come in uh, big. Why does David have to play for Saul? Because David's, the, the Holy Spirit of God, it says in the text in 16, that the Holy Spirit came and rested on David and it left Saul. And then a tormenting spirit from the Lord came on Saul. Bible's complicated, people. A tormenting spirit and so Saul was in agony and said, I need some help. I need someone to play something to soothe me. And somebody says, hey, I got a friend who, I got a friend who. So David shows up and he's playing the harp. This is 16. 
My birth date is the 17th, and so I'm always, where, whenever I hear that, it's like one of my favorite numbers. So that's why when you ask me, so when is the great story of David and Goliath? Oh, it's easy for me to remember. 1 Samuel 17. So this is all 16, the anointing and the playing of the harp, and then in 1 Samuel 17, you have the great Goliath of Gath, the giant. So David now is kind of going back and forth between uh, Jerusalem where Saul might be and, uh, and this. Now the Philistines, who are a group of people, Jerusalem's down here, and the Philistines kind of around in this area, the Phoenicians are even closer to, and they're trying to make inroads. And you have the Philistines from this area, you have the Philistines making raids and causing problems. And now the Philistines are having a battle just outside of Jerusalem in the Valley of Elah, had an opportunity to, to be there when we were in, in Israel a couple of years ago. And it was, it was a pretty cool moment because um, I, I guess in Israel, since everything is like a, hey, this happened here and this happened here, they don't put signs everywhere. So we're just driving, the bus gets off on the side of the road. It made Ryan Smith really scratch his head and said, no, nah, if this really was the place, they'd have a museum. But they don't. They don't even have like a bus stop. They just pull the bus off to the side of the road. We all get out. We're out standing in the middle of this field. And I have to be honest, I'm going, really? <laughs> like maybe you just want to get back to Jerusalem. And so how will these Americans know whether or not this is the Valley of Elah? And he begins to tell the story. And he begins to describe a particular tell or a city mound. And he says right over here, oh, I remember that tell, yeah. And then he pointed us this way, and there's a tell right over, oh, I remember that one. And then there is this hill, and then there is this brook where David went and gathered a couple of stones. Remember that story? And then in, in between these two cities, by, by this hill and right near this brook, and I, I literally, can I go play in the brook for a while, please? And I found four of the five stones. It was amazing. <laughs> Found four. The, you come to my living room. I can show you them. I, I really did. I've done, they're smaller than I thought they would be. Um, but we had this incredible opportunity to be like right in this valley. Now think of this. Now you, you have this Philistine um, kind of going against this army. Now that you kind of see kind of how this all fits together, the Philistines are attacking. The Israelites are in fear. Saul is not defending Israel. If anything, Israel's kind of at the mercy of this arrogant, and I love what David describes him. Do you remember how David calls him? How, how, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God? It's, it's not nationalism as much as it is an absolute offense or an affront to God. And so David says, I will slay this giant. And what do his brothers say? Now, remember, not that long ago, what did his brothers watch? His anointing. And now David walks in and goes, I'll kill the giant and bring peace to Israel. Now do you know why his brothers go, you arrogant little punk. I see what, remember his brothers go after him? Why are his brothers going after him? I never understood it. And then I decided, well, I should probably read it again. Oh, I know why. They're really questioning, so hey, are you trying to weasel in here? Which, by the way, is not a bad question. Is David gonna weasel in here? Like after he kills Goliath, is he gonna weasel in here? And the answer is what? No, nope. it's not my time. 
the whole lesson of the king between a good one and a bad one is trusting God. Trusting God. Therefore, I don't have horses. Therefore, I don't have money. Therefore, I don't have political alliances with wives. Don't have, trust God in all things. And that becomes a major question. So as you see these things happening, David in Saul's presence, he's anointed. Killing Goliath, he is already anointed. And it's in that context that now Saul has profound jealousy against David. So Saul really is a tragic figure. How many of you just feel sorry for Saul? Like literally like you're kind of rooting for him. Um, he's this good, bad guy and you kind of wish he'd be different. You know what I mean? He's kind of like the crazy uncle that mom says not allowed to come to Christmas anymore. But he's just so fun, you know? And so you really want Saul to turn this around, you know? And especially like I love his son, Jonathan. It's like, this isn't fair. Why are you doing this? This is terrible. So he really is this tragic figure, but he loses his, not only his kingdom, but what you actually see in the narrative are a number of things getting stripped away. Saul's children get somewhat taken away from him and given to David. One of them would be Michael, his daughter. Michael absolutely loved David, and um, Saul kind of plays a Laban thing, Laban and, and Jacob, where he promises a bride and then doesn't give her. Um, Saul does that with David, says, hey, if you go out and provide this victory over the Philistines, I'll give you my daughter. And then when he does it, he gives that girl to somebody else. And so he says, but I got this other one. And Michael loved David dearly. And so he says to David, Saul says to David, if you bring me the, um, the foreskins of 100 Philistines, I'll let you have Michael. So David goes out, by the way, gets 200. <laughs> Read the text. He gets 200, comes back, gives them to Saul, and Saul gives him Michael. And Michael loved David dearly. And it makes Saul actually rather jealous. And then Jonathan, the famous Jonathan, this, by the way, is all in 18. So notice, these, these stories actually stick together. Saul's daughter loves David more. Saul's son loves David more. And John, Jonathan and David have this incredible friendship. I'm not even gonna go down any kind of weird road describing the love that David and Jonathan had for each other. Um, it really is nothing, there was nothing wrong or inappropriate at all. It's kind of a crazy reading into it, so I'm not even gonna go down that road at all. Um, there is this profound love that he has. But when you look at it through the right, the right lens, if Saul is the king, then the next king is gonna be who? Jonathan. So he's the king in waiting, but this one's been anointed. So think about that. And by the way, noble character all the way through. Like wonderful character all the way through. So now do you know why, Dave, why Saul is angry at Jonathan? How come you're keeping the truth about David's whereabouts from me? Do you not understand what this is? Do you not understand what's at stake, Jonathan? Do you not, are you not loyal to this family, Jonathan? And Jonathan, through all of this, stays incredibly loyal to King David. At that time, we just called him David. But he stays incredibly loyal to him. So there is this profound jealousy. And then we get the two great stories found in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, where David has this incredible opportunity to kill Saul. Um, had a, actually, he had an opportunity um, when we were going down to the Dead Sea. Just north of the Dead Sea, there's a place called En Gedi, which is where one of these encounters happen, where they're hiding in the caves. We didn't, I didn't get a chance to go quite up that high, but in the caves is where David stumbles across King Saul. 
and he has an opportunity. King Saul has actually gone in there to, to relieve himself. So he is completely exposed. And, and I am indebted to Andy Stanley, who years ago at a Catalyst conference said something that really, I, I've used it a million times because it's been, it's been so helpful to critique how many of us today look at circumstances to try to gauge what God is doing instead of what he has already said in his word. If you are the anointed king of Israel and unjustly being chased by a tyrant, and then that tyrant just happens to be completely exposed to you, and you've spent your life on the run, and you've done nothing wrong, and you have a sword in your hand, and again, you are the anointed king of Israel, what are you going to do? And the answer is what? Kill him. Like, how, how many of us would go, okay, what are the chances of Saul and me being in the same place? And who's in charge of all of this? Isn't it God? So then let's get him. Like, let's do this. This is crazy. I can end it all right now. And what does David say? I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. It's like God has already spoken, and so don't need all these crazy circumstances. to. Con it's amazing how many of us make wrong choices based on circumstances against God's word. And I believe God's word is far more clear than you and I guessing at circumstances. I get it all the time. Hey, man, by the way, I, just, I met this girl, and things seem to really be connecting. Cool. She a nice girl? Oh, I don't know. But I'll tell you, man, it just seems like it's a God thing. Well, what's she like? Well, I don't know, but it seems to be a God thing. Okay, dude, you're, you're messed up in the head. Like, you don't, you don't abandon what we know about what is right and what is true because these things just seem to be lining up. And by the way, this actually happens twice. The next time Saul, David, David meets Saul, there's a camp and his, his, uh, his, his protector, his armor bearer is supposed to be, Abner is supposed to be actually protecting him. And David comes all the way down into the camp and uh, kind of cuts the thing off of Saul. I mean, there's all this complicated stuff that's actually happening. And then David then leaves and goes away and then taunts him, hey, Saul, Ask Abner where he was when I could have taken you. Hey, by the way. And then what's interesting is then David felt terrible that he did even that. But on two different occasions, Saul is delivered to him and he does not take his life. Because why? He knows. I will not raise my hand. I mean, if you want to go back, we all, I, I often hear that the reason why David is a man after God's own heart is because he repented well. Right? I hear that all the time. True. By the way profoundly true. I'm almost more as I kind of read through the kings and recognize how much trust in God matters. Absolute trust in God in opposition to circumstances, in opposition to how I feel, in opposition, a trust in who he is and in his word. Maybe you know, I don't know if I can pit them against each other. That is under-explained. Under David is a profound truster, someone who puts faith in God's word. 
in chapters 21 through 27, there is a considerable amount of, t- of, of, of time um, where David is being chased by Saul. And, and this, by the way, is a theme throughout almost all of David's life. Even after David becomes king, he finds himself on the run again. So David on the run, go back and read the Psalms and check out how many of those are David on the run Psalms. God, my enemies, protect me. All of the wonderful protect me psalms are David being chased by Saul, David being chased by uh, his other enemies, David being chased by his son, David being chased and needing to trust in God to be the one who would actually protect him. Um, and, And you will see constantly both divine and human intervention. Abigail is this wonderful woman that David takes as a wife, is this noble figure, and she kind of steps in and helps. Um, You have Abimelech, the priest, who steps in and helps. And Saul actually ends up killing him. An entire psalm is actually dedicated uh, to the destruction of the Edomite, Doeg, who is a very wicked man. Um, So David spends a lot of this time. Now what's interesting is, is near the end of Saul's life, um, what David decides to do is hide kind of in an area of cities that are Philistine protected. And David finds a king, a Philistine, well, kind of a ruler, a Philistine ruler, Achish, and he aligns himself with him and says, hey, I'll be loyal to you, I'll be faithful, even though I'm a Hebrew, I'll be loyal to you, I'll be faithful to you, and uh, this way Saul, because David thinks he's gonna die. David literally, if you read the text, a number of times David says, Saul is going to kill me, like I'm never going to become king. Saul's going to kill me. And so he hides here as he is constantly on the run. And then as, the, as all of this begins to come to a close, it's very interesting. The Philistines are about to attack Saul and his army. David is with the Philistines ready to go attack. And the Philistines, um, the, the, one, the one ruler that David was with, he wanted to bring David along, but the other Philistine ruler said, no way, he's not coming. And, and David gives this big, long speech. What have I done to you? Like, why won't you, why don't you trust me? And the king says, listen, I do trust you. Those guys don't. So you're not allowed to come. Okay. What's fascinating is that's the battle where, it appears to be, that's the battle where Saul and Jonathan are killed. David could have been there. It's almost like God's hand again comes down and no, you're not going. (laughs) You're not gonna be a part of that. And Saul and his sons have this battle outside of Bethshan, and they are executed. David, by the way, is kind of down south in Ziklag, and his wives, his two wives and their children, and this whole city is burned by a bunch of Amalekites, and David goes down and kind of has his own raid, and then David comes back, and he hears the news that Saul and Jonathan are dead. So what's David's response gonna be? Yeehaw, now I'm king. This is what I love, kind of skipping over into 1 Samuel chapter one. This man runs up, because remember how Saul dies, right? Saul is hit by an arrow. Um, He says to his armor bearer, pierce me through because I do not want these uncircumcised Philistines to catch my body and to then to kind of, you know, to, to mistreat it. And so kill me, and the armor bearer says no. And so Saul takes his sword, falls on his own sword, and then the armor bearer kills himself. That's how he dies. So David hears this news, and the, I, I haven't been able to totally figure out exactly how all the Amalekite references, Saul 
won't kill an Amalekite, kind of is disobedient with the Amalekites. It's the Amalekites that have actually stolen David's wives. And it's an Amalekite that actually comes and says, good news, David, I just got back from the battle and the king that, uh, that you hate, who's been after you, he's dead. How do you know he's dead, David says. And this Amalekite, not knowing David, obviously, says, well, he tells the story, except he kind of injects himself, lying, and says, and so I killed him thinking that King David's going to be so excited about this. And so King David says, turns to another young man and says, strike this man down. Strike him down. And then the way the story goes, it appears most likely that maybe the guy was saying, no, 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 I was kidding, I was kidding, I was kidding. Because at the very end, David says, and if this man, kind of like if this man has lied, his blood is on his own hands because of his own testimony. But David asks him the question that he had to think through. He asks him the question, how come you had no hesitation raising your hand against the Lord's anointed? That's his phrase that he uses. The thing that kept him from killing Saul, he had to ask this Amalekite the same thing. How could you keep your hands, or how could you use your hands to kill one that the Lord had anointed? Like t- t- David just can't fathom that. Earlier in the narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 through 17, Jonathan and David have a pretty powerful encounter. I want to close with this. They had a really powerful encounter in which Jonathan is saying to David, listen, I'll let you know whether or not my father is coming after you. He said, I don't think my dad is. Because literally, he Saul almost appears somewhat like schizophrenic. Like one minute he loves David and he feels bad, and then the next minute he wants to kill him. And so it's, it's this tormented soul And Jonathan finally realizes that his dad's going to kill him. And so he goes back and he sees David. And he actually says to him, uh, almost like, again, in the same way, predicting that God is going to have this. He says, listen, um, if I don't see you again, essentially, if I don't see you again, like I want you to remember me and let's make an alliance house to house here so that you will show kindness and favor unto my house as I have shown favor to you. And David loved Jonathan, loved him. And easily one of my favorite stories in the Bible, when David hears about Saul's death, when David hears about Saul's death, you know what happens? He says, is there anyone in Jonathan's house? Is there anyone at all in Jonathan's house? Which would be Saul's grandchildren. Think about it. Saul's grandchildren would be a threat to the throne, correct? And by the way, they even will be down the road. But God anointed David And David has made an oath to Jonathan. It's not just a friendship. He trusts God and he loves Jonathan. And he says, who is this? And it was actually a young boy. You remember the story? Named Mephibosheth, who was lame in his feet. And David says, find him and bring him to my table. And he literally ate at the king's table. You you don't do that. That is so not politically expedient. But it is God-honoring. And David shows continual kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth actually shows beautiful kindness to King David. It's a, it's a, it's a, actually, it's a, it's a wonderful story. We'll hear more about him next week as we look at David's life. And so you have these two tragic figures. There's a lot of similarities between David and Saul. Um, they were both selected by God. They were both anointed by, uh, by Samuel. They both had victories. David had a lot more, but they both had victories over the Philistines. One seemed to only know how to make mistakes and become hardened by those. King David seemed to make some pretty rotten mistakes, some pretty grievous sins. But he always knew how to trust God 
And he always had, knew how to do what we've been talking about a lot, every, a lot every Sunday morning. He knew how to repent. He knew how to change his heart and his mind, and he knew how, as John the Baptist told the Pharisees, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And David did that. He bore fruit in keeping with repentance. And those are the kings that God builds kingdoms out of. Let me pray. So God, I thank you for this time and for the challenge of this text. Uh, For um, both David and Saul, I give you thanks. Your hand is in both of them. And we are not here to celebrate a wonderful king who knows how to sing and knock over giants and to show kindness. And we're not here to learn lessons from a rebellious, wicked king who never seemed to get it. We are here to honor you, the king of kings the one who orchestrates all of this, the one who is truly trusted, the one who never fails, the one who stands when the best of us fail and the worst of us fail, the one who remembers your covenant to us all the time. And we thank you for all that you have done and for all that you are going to do. Thank you for bringing these things together so that one day we would have Jesus. And although we're early in Israel's history, it's just amazing to see how all of these things are really fitting together because you have a plan. Uh, May that be what even strengthens us as we wonder, as we um, try to go through life circumstances and uh, uh, how do we we deal with uh, a life that is complicated and fears that are real because uh, our, our peace is threatened and our prosperity is slipping. And may we remember you, the covenantal God of Abraham, and your eternal faithfulness to us. And may that be all we need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys, we'll see you Sunday.